Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Now, I think one of the conventions by which we tend to be fooled more than almost any other is time. And for all human beings, time is a matter of extraordinary importance. And perhaps this is one of the principal ways in which we differ from animals. Because man has been called a time-binding animal. Life moves from the past to the future in such a way that what happens now and what will happen is always the result of what has happened in the past. Except occasionally by accident, some people get a glimpse that you are this universe at every moment because you see it starts now. Let's take the small view first of all. The now is infinitely short and yet it's the only thing that is. In that case, this whole world is an illusion. It doesn't really exist. Now the other side of the matter is this, that this short now is an illusion of the clock. We make our second marks on clocks as thin as is consistent with visibility. And therefore we always think of the present as crossing the hairline. That's too long, see? How short can you get? See? <laughs> but really the present isn't like that at all. There is nowhere else but now. Everything that happens is happening now. Time is money, we say. I don't have enough time. Time flies, time drags. And I think we should go into the question of what this is because in our ordinary common sense, we think of time as a one-way motion from the past, through the present, and on into the future. You know, once upon a time it was fashionable in psychology for people to speak of man's and animal's instincts that we had, for example, an instinct for survival, an instinct to make love, and so on. But nowadays that word has become unfashionable and psychologists tend instead to use the word drives and to speak of the need for food as a drive, the need for survival or for sex as drives. And that's a very significant word because it's brought out, isn't it? by people who feel driven. The whole idea of our being driven is connected with the idea of causality, of life moving under the power of the past. When the moment of letting go comes, when we see that every moment of life is now it, 
In other words, the object of life is no longer seen as something to grasp after in the future. The experience at the basis of Zen can be demonstrated by ordinary everyday life. The art of washing dishes is that you only have to wash one at a time. If you're doing it day after day, you have in your mind's eye an enormous stack of filthy dishes which you have washed up in years past and an enormous stack of filthy dishes which you will wash up in years future. But if you bring in your mind to the state of reality, which as is, as I've pointed out to you, only now, this is where we are. There is only now. You only have to wash one dish. It's the only dish you'll ever have to wash, this one. Because in reality, there is no past and there is no future. There is just now. So you wash this one. And instead of thinking, have I got it really clean, as my mother taught me with an angry voice, that I had to get every little scrap off it, you know, and she got, ah! Instead, you turn the cleaning movement into a dance. Like this. And you dig that. And you swing that plate around. And you let the rinsing water go over it. And you put it off in the rack. Crazy. See? Take the next one. And you get this rhythm going. See? And you, you're not under compulsion all the time. That is to say, a creature who is vividly aware of the fact that his life moves, as it were, along a line from the past through the present and into the future. Animals apparently live pretty much moment by moment. We actually spend most of our time and a great deal of our emotional energy living in time which is not here, living in an elsewhere which is not concretely real. So much so that although we may be quite comfortable and happy in our present circumstances, if there is not a guarantee, not a promise, of a good time coming tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow, we are at once unhappy, even in the midst of pleasure and affluence. And so we develop a kind of chronic anxiety about time. We want to be sure more and more because of our sensitivity to the feeling of time. We want to be sure more and more that our future is assured. And for this reason, the future becomes of more importance to most human beings than the present. My goodness, don't you remember when you went first to school? You went to kindergarten. And in kindergarten, the idea was to push along so that you could get into first grade and then push along so that you could get into second grade, third grade, and so on, going up and up. And then you went to high school, and this was a great transition in life. And now the pressure is being put on. You must get ahead. You must go up the grades and finally be good enough to get to college. And then when you get to college, you're still going step by step, step by step, up to the great moment in which you're ready to go out into the world. And then when you get out into this famous world, comes the struggle for success in profession or business. And again, there seems to be a ladder before you, something for which you're reaching all the time. And then, suddenly, when you're about 40 or 45 years old in the middle of life, you wake up one day and say, Huh? I've arrived. 
And by Jove, I feel pretty much the same as I've always felt. In fact, I'm not so sure that I don't feel a little bit cheated. Because you see, you were fooled. You were always living for somewhere where you aren't. And while, as I said, it is of tremendous use for us to be able to look ahead in this way and to plan, there is no use planning for a future, which when you get to it and it becomes a present, you won't be there. You'll be living in some other future which hasn't yet arrived. And so in this way, one is never able actually to inherit and enjoy the fruits of one's action. You can't live at all unless you can live fully now. Gurdjieff used to set his students the exercise he called self-remembering. That is, constantly, all day long, be completely aware of what you're doing. Have your mind always on the immediate moment. Oh, and it's tough, 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 tough to do that. Till one fine day you realize, to your astonishment, there is no way at all of having your mind anywhere else but in the present moment. As even when you think about the past or the future, you're doing it now, aren't you? And that results in a very curious transformation of consciousness. You feel that, you, or that the present moment is flowing along and carrying you with it all the time. Just like the flow of the Tao. The flow of the Tao is as it, what we would call the flow of the present. Chris Cornell tragically passed away at age 52 on May 18, 2017. He left behind a legacy of music and a reputation for one of the most powerful vocal ranges in rock and roll history. Although known for his music, Cornell was also a true intellect, expressing thought-provoking ideas in both interviews and in his song lyrics. My fifth birthday, actually, on my birthday, was the day that men first walked on the moon that sort of became part of normal life like wow this is the world this is life this is living stuff like that happens and then a guy goes to the moon and then cool stuff that's where we somehow managed to focus an incredible amount of resources and energy on useless stuff that doesn't mean anything like following celebrities that are celebrities for the sake of being celebrities and buying magazines that they're in and spending hours of the day thinking about who they are and what they're doing and what clothes they're wearing and what songs they're listening to and who gives a f And by the same token, um, we're still sort of participating in a system that ecologically is slowly but surely destroying everything and everyone can say that everyone kind of knows that even the naysayers sort of have to believe it at this point but nothing's really changing um and that's all you know that's just kind of a, a strange thing to me i see sort of the simple truth in a baby in simple things because they're taking them simply and they're finding like a universe in something that's very small that's very simple that we all take for granted um, that's much more important than what some idiot is wearing on a red carpet. To me, it's the, it's the kind of uh, the simplicity of like that banana over there, <laughs> which is pretty amazing. And that, that sounds like a stupid thing to say, but it's true. It's pretty amazing the, 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 how it got here. And, you know, what always occurs to me is children, having children, watching them grow up, 
um, seeing them as babies, taking this almost kind of smug uh, sort of superior attitude that the adults take around children as though they're smarter while, you know, observing at the same time all of the areas where children are actually much smarter than adults and the big smart adults not really seeing it. And it's that, that sort of simplicity, it's that banana that's in front of you. It's that they're living in the moment and seeing everything sort of that is right there. They're not complicating anything. They're not preoccupied with things that are completely unnecessary. Therefore, they're kind of there and open to see sort of the miracles of life. You and me and this nice gentleman holding the camera. When we die, there's nothing left, no memories. We don't exist anymore. It's lights out. It doesn't make where we are and what we're seeing and what our experience is less important or less amazing. It's still just as incredible and just as miraculous so the idea of spirituality the idea of a disembodied spirit the idea of something going on outside of this um it's nice to think about it it's great if it's there but but it doesn't have to be for us to, to give a shit about how miraculous the world around us is and what's going on right now chris once said i'm not a lyric writer to make statements what i enjoy doing is making paintings with lyrics creating colorful images. I think that's more what entertainment and music should be. This quote is a great representation of many Chris Cornell lyrics. One song that paints a vivid picture for me is Like a Stone by Audio Slave. The first verse of the song reads, I was lost in the pages of a book full of death, reading how we'll die alone, and if we're good, we'll lay to rest anywhere we want to go. Through the history of, like, at least recorded history of human beings, billions of people have been born and died, and there have been geniuses that have lived from every culture and, and, and every part of the world. And not one time has anyone been able to come up with any kind of substantial proof about what happens to us after our bodies die. That's kind of an, an incredible thing to me. It's kind of. It, like you would think, it almost, it, it, it brings a pessimist out of me which says, if no one's been able to come up with any real concrete scientific evidence that, that, that there is life after death or whatever that might be, then it's pretty conclusive that there probably isn't. And then there's another side of me that just intrinsically doesn't believe that that is possible, that, that we're sort of people with, a, with neurons firing and when our heart stops, that's it. You know? I, um, so... I suppose in terms of it being thought-provoking and interesting that it, it, that it can be inspiring in terms of writing lyrics and it, it's, a, it's, it's a very mysterious thing. Despite his incredibly successful career, Chris stuck true to his roots and found much more fulfillment in writing music than he did in material items. I'm not much of a materialist um, and, and I learned that kind of from I, you know, you're in a band, you're making music all the time, writing songs, I spend all my energy doing that. And then, you're, you know, my band had some success, suddenly there's money and there's, you know, we have... I started seeing like a lot of friends of mine get really distracted by money. Because they'd start going and doing things that they maybe had always been interested in. Um, that being an, a musician suddenly afforded them to be able to do. And for me... None of the, I didn't have any of those things. I just wanted to to just make keep making music. So it's like it didn't really. I, I sort of realized I was a non-materialist, and and that stuff didn't really matter that much to me. And that nothing really kind of beat that feeling of writing a song. Cornell's final album, Higher Truth, 
had a bit more of a philosophical approach to it. It seems to have a consistent theme of mankind's pursuit of meaning. One human can kind of create a song or whatever it is, a, a poem, a painting, whatever, that stirs something in them and someone else essentially will be stirred by it too. Not, not by my story, but, it, but sort of it's somehow um, evoking images or feelings in them and allowing them to kind of feel something in their story. And if you can't do that, then I think you're screwed. What I think is important for anybody is to be able to communicate, you know, and get their feelings across. And so if you're a songwriter, for example, that's one way that you're doing it. And uh, to know that you, that you are, that you are communicating, um, is very satisfying. Because you never know. You know, I've, I've been in that position before where I um, felt like a, a song was working in a way that... that I thought would be easily communicated and then uh, after a while I realized that it, it didn't really work that way it wasn't doing that and then and then wondering why where did I go wrong here and the, that's the part I guess that's challenging about music rest in peace Chris you and your music will be remembered forever John Frusciante was born March 5th 1970 in New York City He's most famously known for playing lead guitar for the Red Hot Chili Peppers. He also has 11 solo albums resulting from his time away from the band. He's had an outstanding musical career with top charting success and multiple Grammy wins. Despite his success, he doesn't take credit for his talent. Instead, he insists that nature expresses itself through his music. And in this interview, he asks the questions that more of us need to be asking. What don't you believe? And what do you believe? I think the force that created us is uh, expressing itself through our existence. I don't believe that a musical idea starts in your brain. I believe it starts at a place before that that we don't have any direct contact with. And I believe that everything that we do, everything that we create, is nature expressing itself the same way that when a flower grows out of the ground or a tree grows out of the ground, it's nature expressing itself. And you might say that the tree is expressing itself by the way its branches move out, but it's the force that drives nature. The tree is the visible thing that appears to our, five, to our senses, but I don't at all believe it's the source of why everything is perpetuated all the time, you know. And music is a, it's an ineffable thing that I don't think words can really do any good to give us any true understanding of um, we are able to make contact with that creative force of the universe or the source or God or whatever you want to call it um, we're able to sort of uh, connect with the intelligence of this by uh, learning uh, a musical language learning a musical instrument learning how to identify a sound and, and a feeling and to be able to learn how to gradually express that feeling through an instrument. The idea of somebody considering themselves responsible for a piece of music is ridiculous. We're only acting into the laws of nature that have given us the possibilities that we're exploring with our the intelligence that we've been given. You know, uh, some, something like the the frequency spectrum from low to high, It's that's here whether we're here or not, it exists as, as part of the structure of physical reality uh, and our brains are learning to interact with it through learning an instrument, you know, um, or through using our voice in a certain way. Um, but the pol possibilities are presented in this kind of invisible, silent way, they're just there, you know. Uh, the laws of acoustics are what they are, the, 
the frequency spectrum is what it is. The 12 note to the octave scale was just something waiting to be discovered, but which was already a mathematical possibility. It's that way with any piece of music. I think it's been the big lie that's been uh, that's been perpetuated ever since the star-making machine of Hollywood started. That the thing responsible for a great actor or a great musician, it's just been continued by the music business, is they get this idea into the public's head that it's the, the physical image of the person and the name of the person that is responsible for the creation of what they do. That's not what creates it. The, what creates it is the imagination and the thing that makes it possible for one person to be in the right place at the right time in their life to create the things that they create. It has to do with a really complex structure of the mind and the soul and the nervous system. All these unknown things that are taking place in the subconscious, which which can be just as much structured by terrible things as it can by good. You know, a, a person could be nothing but abused and put down their whole life, and for whatever reason, their will to live, their love for music, their their feeling for music, and all the fucked up things that have happened to them, all combined to to make perfection. You know, they, I mean, just for example, somebody like Jimi Hendrix having a really difficult life growing up, nevertheless. That was exactly what made him the person who was capable of doing the beautiful, perf you know, perfect music that he did, or, or some kind of disadvantage like Beethoven being deaf. You know, things things that appear to be disadvantages somehow in the complex network of the universe's intelligence end up working towards making this perfection. I I really don't believe that somebody would would do it with some kind of a perfect life. And this is just all stuff. It can't be explained. Nobody nobody understands why it is that results in it, but it's not because Jimi Hendrix looked the way he looked. It's not because Jimi Hendrix danced the way he danced or because his name was Jimi Hendrix, you know. It's like these things are just meaningless, yet the way that the business has used these media tools has perpetuated this idea that what's important is that he's the greatest guitarist ever and he's Jimi Hendrix and there's his picture, that's him. And it's like, the only real picture of him is his music, you know? The only thing that, that we should be like putting up on a pedestal is the works of somebody's imagination. And the imagination itself should be catered to by the people who, uh, whose responsibility it is to take somebody's music from them to an audience, you know? It's the real star of the whole thing. I don't believe that the human being is the star, and I don't believe their name is the star. I, I think it's their imagination that's the star. And just because it's something you can't package, just because it's something you can't take a picture of, just because it's something you can't measure by it's number one, or it's sold this amount, or this many people love it, or this many people come to see it, there's no way to quantify the imagination, and there's no way to, to sell it directly. Playing massive shows in front of thousands of screaming fans, Frusciante is still able to keep a calm mind and not think about how the audience perceives him, summed up in this simple quote, I'm not interested in meeting people's expectations, and I'm not interested in pleasing people. Talk about being up here on stage, you make it look effortless. What kind of things are going through your mind when you're up there playing guitar? Oh, nothing. The, 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 the idea there is to shut your mind off, you know. Music comes through you when you're not thinking and when you learn how to just surrender to the current of music. It's not, a, it's not about thinking anything or planning anything, you know. So you just learn to shut your mind off gradually through your practice. Yeah, and you can do it when you know millions of people are watching and you're on, you know, worldwide television. Do you think about that kind of thing at all? 
that's the trick is to not, not 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 think about it from their angle because you can only really experience anything from your own angle as an individual person i i don't know what what i appear to be to the millions of people watching so i can't worry about that i just have yeah. to be myself you know? what what do these denominations mean to you at this point all the, all the bands been through to have this kind of success and acclaim at this point what does it mean to you in the band means that we're being respected by the industry that we work in. Yeah, I, I, I'm a musician. I, I think about music. I think about books. I, I don't. I, I don't get too lost in in the way the world sees me. It's not that important. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's like it's like uh, like I said. I just have to worry about myself. Mm -hmm. I'm a person with a lot of problems and a lot of uh, you know things to enjoy in my life and a lot of opportunities to celebrate joy of existence. Mm -hmm. um, you know, being being acknowledged, like I said, by society and by the Grammys is is a, it's an honor. You know, mm -hmm. it's what it, I, I I take it for what it is. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Doesn't mean that I've like reached the highest peak of my artistic right. worth. I might not be acknowledged at all when I reach that peak. You, it's not the two things aren't necessarily sure. correlated. After years of drug addiction, John speaks about the negative effects drug use has on life and creativity. He makes a point of experiencing richer feelings without drugs, having a positive impact on not just his own life, but also the people surrounding him. I believe that the people who have done good things on drugs could have done good things without drugs, and I believe that they would have also had the added bonus of their life not falling apart, you know. Every time make people people's lives fall apart, Sometimes it happens gradually, sometimes it happens quickly, but it always happens. And I just think it's silly, you know. I, yeah, you can get some good feelings from drugs, but you can get just as good feelings without drugs if you live your life properly and if you, if you get a good enough role going as far as your creativity goes. I know that if you dedicate every second of every day to being as creative as you can be, that you can live a way richer life with more variety of feelings and making other people feel good as well every minute of the day with no drugs you know and with drugs if you if you let the drugs take their course you won't be making anybody else feel good you'll making be making all your friends feel awful and you'll also feel awful about yourself because you'll stop being able to, to be creative at a certain point you know and you'll have to constantly struggle to stay away from them life shouldn't be a struggle life should be a flowing smooth thing this isn't a hard uh, world to live in. This isn't a hard dimension to live in. If you surround yourself with the right people and if you do the right things and if you're as good of a person as you, you're capable of being to other people, you'll find that the world will make a space for you, you know. Uh, what happens to you is dictated by the things you think about and, uh, and you should always think good things and always look for the good in the world. And, if you look for the bad in the world, you'll always find something bad. But if you look for the good in the world, you'll find it. It's there. I've seen uh, people having a sort of a spiritual life be really beneficial to them as creative people because when you separate yourself from the three-dimensional world and you realize that there's other planes of existence and that the heavens are as much of a part of this dimension as the ground is, you can start sort of trying to recreate the sky and the clouds and stuff with your music and you can start really just being a better mirror of nature in your music, but God and religion, I don't think it does anything positive for you as an artist. I think it's important for an artist to be free of any organized form of belief, you know. I think a person should invent their own sort of system of belief 
as they find out about it. It's like, I didn't really understand anything about other dimensions when I was a little kid, but I was always open-minded and I was always trying to learn more things. And at this point in my life, you know, I feel like spirits and ghosts and things have as much to do with my music as people do, you know. In my opinion, John is just as big of a spiritual influence as he is musically. What do you think? Most earthlings try very hard to be recognized for what they do, but when they become stars, sir, they realize they're recognized wherever they go. You have responsibilities, anxieties, and, well, to be honest, sir, some of them can't take it. Was instant stardom like that, and instant fame like that, disorienting? Very. It's like being taken from the bottom of Death Valley to the top of the Empire State Building in two seconds. It's totally disorienting to be from, you know, just performing in the comedy store, small clubs, and all of a sudden have everybody know you. And that happened. And that was instantaneous. And that, it's a little frightening, too. I mean, you know, people, if you're kind of shy, and sometimes I get kind of like this, that they, you know, people would, they just look at you. Cocaine, mm, what a wonderful drug. Anything that makes you paranoid and impotent, give me more of that. <laughs> One of the great triumphs of your life was the way you beat drugs. But do you think that getting into them was the effect of success or just the atmosphere of the 70s it was late both. 80s I mean, success was one it was like it's like the old joke do you have a drug problem no everybody had it it wasn't <laughs> it was a great way of kind of avoiding contact and then you get into this kind of you want to pull back from it rather than experience it because it's frightening and you're trying to find some way to pull away i think it was just it was escaping from people basically it's you know just you know the, from those people going hey <laughs> When you're a celebrity, everybody wants a piece of you, sir. Unless you can say no, there'll be no pieces left for yourself. Sometimes it was the fear of failure. It was that thing of, you know, if you didn't notice, you wouldn't... Because it was coming so fast, it was that fear of when's it going to go? Rather than just keep, you know, finding and doing different things. Cocaine actually made me almost not sleepy, but it would just shut me down. I would get like this. And I think that's why I did it. So I wouldn't have to experience. So it was cutting off from people. As yeah, you said. it was isolating. It was, and then years later, after I stopped, when I see people, they're actually going, "You just made eye contact. How you doing?" <laughs> most of the time, you didn't have to. It was a great chance not to look at people. It was, you know, this. I couldn't see anyone. It's because once again, it's the brain. The brain, once it tastes it, will want to go back up to the same level. Will demand that because it's psychologically addicting. They found that out. And how long? How long did it take you to feel that sense of? liberation that you mentioned Richard Pryor felt. It took you about a year. Someone said you, you're liberated when you don't talk about it. When you don't mention, uh, you don't have to say anything. When it uh, doesn't appear in your subconscious, when it's just gone. Something very freeing about having, having your mind back and in your control. The ideas that you find will get you the same kind of stimulus. And then what other things happen is you start to relate to people again. And as you come back into the world and relate to them, they're stimulating and realizing that can be quite wonderful. Conversations with friends, you know, playing, playing with your child. You know, all of these things can be just as stimulating and wonderfully so and nourishing. And then all of a sudden you start to come back. It's a, it's a you know, it's just a process of that, of, you know, building that in again. You treat a disease, you win, you lose. You treat a person, I guarantee you, you win no matter what the outcome. Providing a security for acknowledging who I am and saying, I love that. I love what you are. Don't be afraid. And it's like, oh, then that frees you up. You really do? Me? 
I used to talk about myself. I used to have this image that I was kind of like this, almost like a dwarf, because I'd been called that in school. It's like this little short, short, furry, furry guy. And then I said, so I love that. Really? But that's, that's been the process, and it's so wonderful. And it's growing. And you learn and you go through it, and it's been tough. And the way that all of Oliver's work is, he makes you examine these supposedly negative and horrifying things from another perspective and say, yes, these are, you know, there is great pain in aspects to that. But he also says, look at the power of the human spirit, and more than just the spirit, the power of the mind, and distinguishing between the mind and the brain. Some people say that the brain is a computer, but he said, no, beyond that, there is something, there is deity within you. There is that, you know, that spark, that divine thing, and it stems from creation, that, that thing that is soul. The human spirit is more powerful than any drug. And that is what needs to be nourished. And that's what I was fascinated by with Oliver's writing and with Awakenings. That which can shine through something that which seems apparently dead, but yet the, the human mind and spirit shines through that. And you saw it in the tapes when he showed me the tapes of some of the patients. And they would be like this, and he'd say, watch. And all of a sudden, they would come back. And you can see they were there, and then they would go out again. And it would be in that moment you knew. And he said that was he was only going on that faith that they were there. Well, I was going to say, did meeting those people over such a sustained period of time, concentrated period of time, I mean, did it make you feel that life is incredibly unfair, or did you feel that maybe it's fair because they have some compensated thing that we don't? The thing that makes me sometimes feel that life is unfair, that flattens me, is when you see children with cancer, when they bring that, I say, why? I mean, we had a young boy come to the set of Hook who wrote and came and you say, why? Why Why do this? I mean, why is it that they have this? I mean, that sometimes, one time I go, oh, if it's benevolent and all this, why are they? But yet, then after a while you talk to them and even then you, they have such a, a will and a power that any time you start to think of my life and go, look at this child. Now, this one little boy was eight, shaved head from chemotherapy, but had such a strength and a power and such a joy that he was just like, it was beyond intoxicating that he basically had this will and this spirit and this love and was not bitter and was not angry. He was still a child and he still would take me to meet the other kids and say, look, and this is my friend, that's Tommy. He's on a machine, but he's okay, you know, and he's fine, he likes Legos. And he, he wasn't like this, you know, and obviously there were times when it's horrible, horribly, horribly painful. Does religion matter to you much? Oh, deeply. I mean, it comes from years ago when I used to treat it more in kind of that cosmic sense, like Einstein said, if you, when you look around and you see all, all of it, you have to realize there's some you know, method behind it all. And, there's, and, and the, truly your sense of awe and your sense of wonder, and then you begin to approach that. And then from the painful issues, you know, when you, what we've just talked about, can you be angry at that? Or do you kind of start to go beyond and look at it all and realize not to be bitter, not to be angry, but to still treat, keep trying and not give up on people. Don't give up on me. What infuriates me sometimes here is that the lack of, sometimes just the sheer lack of funding. When the truth is we're broke, so you can't even get furious about that. But how can you deny when there's, you know, hundreds of thousands of people who have AIDS and are dying of it and just turn your head on them? And not them people are dying alone in their rooms. And why do you, why do, you do that? Well, Jesse sometimes will deny the funds because this is God's will. Well, Jesse sometimes wake up, you know. So you have to take that stand and, you know, 
wander among people. That's and not be afraid of that, and to wander among into the world and to put your heart and soul behind trying to still keep things going, not to accept it and just say, well, it's the way it is, and to trying to help these children if it, if you can't cure it and to make their life wonderful now, and to let, you know to try and do these things that you know that allows them to have a wonderful life despite this. With work, play, friendship, family. These are the things that matter. Not just for your, your own family, but for the family of man. That there are, we are, we are one species. And we are endangered. We are about, you know, we are basically destroying ourselves from within unless you wise up and start to take certain measures on all levels, on all levels. And that's where you have. And it's what this one, this three and a half pound gland that we have, the one cure lies within the same thing that is causing a lot of the pain is this. Well, why, why if we've got those brains, why are we destroying ourselves with because why are we Why are we so self-destructive? Because Kessler used to say we haven't evolved, we haven't, you know, jumped between the, the lower brains, the, you know, the lizard and the mammal, you know. There are very few mammals that, you know, kill each other off, except for rats. <laughs> and then sometimes you wonder why we look like that. that we have to evolve up somehow, take the leap to evolve the, the emotional level with this intellect that can create amazing machines that can save life, but also create amazing machines that can take it and in two seconds, destroy the world. And to evolve and to join, to somehow catch up to all of the different things. He was suggesting that they should make a drug that, that somehow bridges the gap emotionally between this, you know, you have these you know, powerful soul and these feelings that sometimes could be overridden by this mind that can say, we must extinguish all the others. And then you go, wait, this was an intellect that came up with that concept. And wait, bring the heart up to that, to override that, and to join all of them. These are the things that is happening. We, will we catch up to ourselves? Will we somehow be in control of that we still have these primitive urges that used to make me take, you know, is when we were like running around going, <laughs> but now we have a big stick that basically burns everything. <laughs> Gone. You know, these are the things that you have to, you know, you try, you play with, you, with the comic, you play with it, but you're still playing with pain. No matter what anybody tells you, Words and ideas can change the world. Do you have a favorite role across the years? Yeah, Dead Poets Society. Yeah. With one of the great directors, Peter Weir, who is an Australian and an amazing, he's a director, but he's also a teacher. Everybody who's ever worked with him comes out a better person. He gave me the greatest advice of all. He said, you know, you don't have to say anything. Yeah. If you listen, like I'm doing right now. Okay, back. <laughs> But he said, if you really listen with intent, you can be quite powerful. And it was it took so much pressure off of thinking, I've got to be ready to say the next thing. And it was just this idea of inhabiting that just as much as speaking. It, just, it was a great gift. Oh, when you're approaching 60, you, you look happy, you look comfortable, you look... Yeah, quiet. It's just a quiet life. Yeah, I'm as peaceful as I can be as a 59-year-old comic. It's kind of like the old joke where you just, you don't have to, don't rush down the hill, walk down. You know, you have a good time. Life's pretty amazing, especially after rehab and heart surgery. It's really amazing. The powerful play goes on and you may contribute a verse.
your verse be? Over his 43-year career, there is no musician alive who has been more influential. He came to be as he is because things needed saying. He somehow had an ear on his generation. There's no doubt that his words on peace and human rights are much more incisive and much more powerful and much more permanent than those of any president of the United States. Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan. Pure Dylan. Mysterious, elusive, fascinating. Bob Dylan knew how to put the essence of all the great religions into beautiful lyrics. Art is uh, valueless. I think art can lead you to God. I mean, if it's not doing that, what's it doing? It's leading you the other way. It's not certainly leaving you nowhere. It's bringing you somewhere. It's either bringing you that way or this way. Well, if, it's, if it expresses truth and beauty, then it's leading you to God. Yeah. <laughs> if it's expressing truth, I'd say it's leading you to God and beauty also. I always thought those are the only two absolutes that they were. Well, beauty can be very, very deceiving. And it's not always of God. Would you elaborate on that a bit? Well, beauty appeals to our eyes. The beauty of a sunset? Now, that's that's this very special kind of beauty. Well, how about the beauty of the natural a, world? Uh, like the flowers. And, yes, and, and the beasts. And the rain. And the rain, you know? All that is beautiful. That's God-given. I've spent a lot of time dealing with the man-made beauty. So, uh, <laughs> so that... Uh, uh, Sometimes the beauty of God's world has evaded me. Henry Miller said that the role of an artist is to uh, inoculate the world with disillusionment. Yeah. Um, no, I don't consciously try to inoculate anybody. I just have to hope this music that I've always played is a healing kind of music. The thing that comes up, a lot of people had sort of, it seems, expected you to say, uh, poor and on the streets and, uh, uh, you know, not to, almost as if they didn't want you to live in a nice place or, or didn't want you to experience that. You had a line where you said it, that's, it's not necessarily, uh, it's not necessarily bad for an artist to, to have a nice place to live in or nice surroundings. Or, well, you know, you make, you make of it what you make of it. Nothing's forever, everything's temporary. Uh, you don't leave any nice place behind, or, or it's you just have to, uh, uh, you have to, you have to have some kind of a, uh, a focus on, on what you need and what people uh, force you to need. If the common perception of me out there in the public I was that I was either a drunk or I was a or a sicko, or a Zionist, or, or, or a Buddhist, or a Catholic, or, or a Mormon. Uh, all, all of this was better than uh, Archbishop Anarchy. The spokesman for the generation. Yeah. Opposed everything. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I know that 
and I accept you don't see yourself as the voice of that generation. But some of your songs did stop people cold, and they saw them as, as, as anthems, and they saw them as protest songs. It was important in their lives. It sparked a movement. Words have their own meaning. They have different meanings. And then all and words change their meaning. Words that were meant something 10 years ago don't mean that now. They mean something else. And he said this about the life of an artist. An artist has got to be careful never really to arrive at a place where he thinks he's at somewhere. You always have to realize that you're constantly in the state of becoming, you know. And uh, as long as you can stay in that realm, you sort of be all right. It was like being in an Edgar Allan Poe story. And you're just not that person everybody thinks you are, although they call you that all the time. Bob Dylan. Did your parents approve of you being a singer, a songwriter, going to New York? No, uh, the, the, they wouldn't have, have wanted that uh, for me, but uh, my parents never went anywhere. My father probably thought the capital of the world was where, wherever he was at the time. What made you different? What pushed you out of there? Well, I listened to the radio a lot. I hung out in record stores and I slam banged around on a guitar and played the piano and and uh, learned songs from uh, a world which didn't exist around me. There's a song uh, on your new album that's called Trust Yourself that some people have interpreted as essentially a message to people who who've made a kind of myth out of you. Is that an accurate interpretation of that? A myth? Yeah, I mean, or that, that it's a message to people to to trust their own instincts and not to not but, to follow, not to put so much stock in. That's pretty accurate, yeah. When you say you have very little belief in yourself, uh, in in what sense? I mean, is it you just? Well, you can only do so much, you know. Uh, who knows uh, what's lurking behind the, the corner? Yeah, at any time they come up so uh, we can have these big plans and dreams but uh, uh, there's there's no guarantee that any of it is going to come off unless we're allowed we're allowed the uh, time and we're allowed to have it come off yeah. when you say uh, big plans and dreams do you at least have those no not really I just go from day to day and um, just keep at it you use the word destiny over and over throughout the book what what does that mean to you it, it's a feeling you have that you know something about yourself nobody else does the picture you have in your mind of what you're about will come true that's kind of a thing you kind of have to keep to your own self because it's a fragile feeling and you put it out there and somebody will kill it so it's best to keep that all inside. What makes you happiest in, in your music? Uh, or, or does it make you happy? <laughs> the music, I mean, is that... Yeah, that's all I do. You know, I don't know how to do anything else. Uh, uh, but does, does it make you happy? I mean, is, is that a the way to... Oh, yeah, it always does. It's kind of, it always has. I expect it always will. Is there anything about, about life outside of that 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 makes you happy. Your oh, no, I love I love living every moment. You know, everything makes me happy. I mean, uh, certain things make me happier than other things, but uh, I don't get too down about anything. Is there any? I mean, do you have a, an idealized 
a picture of the, of the kind of, of the way you'd, you'd like things to be? <laughs> well, it's, I, I don't really think about those things. I just think about what, what is, you know, and have to deal with that the best way that, that there, I know how to deal with it. And how, how do you deal with it? Well, I just deal with it the way I do. I, I would, uh, I guess, I would do that in any place I was. It was most peculiar. Out of nowhere, he suddenly said, "Religion is over, and it lies in the arts. That the information, the spiritual life, will be in the vessel of the visual and the musical art." I think it's terribly dangerous for an artist to fulfil other people's expectations. I think they produce, they generally produce their worst work when they do that. Maybe we have to exist and live on the idea that we have one day at a time. If we could do that, we may be serving some, really some great thing. I think the potential of what the internet is going to do to society, both good and bad, is unimaginable. David Bowie is known as one of the most influential musicians of the 20th century, leaving a phenomenal impact on popular music throughout his life. Although there is more to this man than meets the eye, there's an intellectual and spiritual side to him that often gets overlooked when it comes to his reputation. Although I believe this is one of the major reasons for his success, as well as his unique artistic approach to never play to the gallery. Never play to the gallery, <laughs> I think. But you never learn that until much later on, I think. But never work for other people at what you do. Always remember that the reason that you initially started working was that there was something inside yourself that you felt that if you could manifest it in some way, you would understand more about yourself and how you coexist with the rest of society. I think it's terribly dangerous for an artist to fulfil other people's expectations. I think they produce, they generally produce their worst work when they do that. But I've gotten used to the fact that、uh, you just can't please all the people all the time.、Um, I've got no great desire to be loved in a major way by faceless, anonymous crowds. It doesn't really—it's not part of something that I want. And if the other thing I would say is that if you feel safe in the area that you're working in, you're not working in the right area. Always go a little further into the water than you feel you're capable of being in. Go a little bit out of your depth, and when you don't feel that your feet are quite touching the bottom. You're just about in the right place to do something exciting. Another intriguing view David shares is the idea of artistic views being some kind of a dysfunctionality, rather than living a steady and sustainable lifestyle. Being an artist is to take a step into the unknown, eliminating the stereotypical rules of society. I have often wondered if, if actually, the, being an artist of, of in any way, any nature, is a, a, a kind of a sign of a certain kind of dysfunction, a social dysfunctionalism. Anyway, it's an extraordinary thing to want to do, to express yourself in such in such rarefied terms.、Uh, I think it's a loony kind of thing to want to do. I think the the saner and rational approach to life is to. Survive steadfastly and create a protective home, and create a warm, loving environment for one's family, and, and get food for them. That's about it. That's actually all. Anything else is extra. All culture is extra. Culture is,、uh, you know, that's.、Uh, I guess it's a freebie.
It's something that we, we don't, we only need to eat. We don't need particular colour plates or particular height chairs or anything. I mean, anything will do, but we insist on making 1,000 different kinds of chairs and 15 different kinds of plates. It's, it's unnecessary and it's a sign of the irrational part of man, I think. One of the David Bowie quotes that I find most fascinating is, Religion is for people who fear hell. Spirituality is for people who have been there. This seems to be a reflection of his spiritual knowledge, as well as the studies he did on Buddhism early on. When I was, eight, when I was about 18, um, I, I studied Tibetan Buddhism for about two or three years, and I had a teacher, Jimmy Yangdung Rinpoche, who had just come over from Tibet and led his own followers over. The majority of them, sadly, were shot by the Chinese as they made their exit from Tibet down into India. He started off, I think, something like 2,000 followers and ended up with 50 or 60. The helicopters would come out there and shoot them off. Um, but he fortunately came through and he really in, in, sort of tried to guide me into an, uh, some kind of informed opinion about Buddhism. I wouldn't say that I was a very good Buddhist. Actually, he eventually told me to exert myself in music and not run off and get my hair cut off and become a lama. But the one thing that he left me with was a sense of transience and change, uh, which actually became fundamentals to my life, my approach to it, and not holding on to anything, not considering that there is anything that will last through one's entire eternal life, living or dead. And it makes letting go very easy, material things or physical things. And looking for the source of one's own being becomes much more important. And I guess that's been sort of my, my own personal journey, is, is trying to sort out where my spiritual bounty lies, where my thread to a universal order lies. And that, that, becomes, that can become a life search. And I think that's, as a writer, probably what I involve myself in more than anything else. It was a Zen, a Zen teacher at a temple that I, I like a lot in, in Kyoto. It was most peculiar, out of nowhere, he suddenly said, religion is over. And it lies in the arts that the information in spiritual life will be in the vessel of the visual and the musical art. So I thought it was quite a stunning comment from this 70-year-old Zen master. I can't remember who the philosopher was, but in the early part of the century, he said that we have to kill God to reinvent him. And I think that is very much playing itself out in the later part of this century. I think we have to find the focus of, of where our religious strength lies in an entirely different area from the, the archaic and almost medieval forms that we're sort of expected to supplant ourselves to. Yeah. There's a term that the uh, Gnostics use, which is called the God beyond God. And I think that there's a sense of one's uh, trying to find uh, some merit in the chaos that, that we perceive as our existence. And for someone like myself who comes from Judeo-Christian upbringing, there's something that pulls with the idea of having a, a God who's a, a judge and a father and a arbiter of morals and, and whatever. It just doesn't, it seems too symbolic, it's too easy. And I think um, that the idea that uh, the early Gnostics had, which is that there is in fact the deep, the depth of the God beyond the God. There's something beyond that which one can't call a singular entity. It's something that just pervades everything. And I still think that that's probably one of the major searches that I've probably made in my life. I'm not 
sure how close I ever got. But I know that it does occur to most of us, I think, who work in, in, in the arts or in writing or expressing oneself. When you're expressing oneself, you're also trying to express one's existence. You know, so it's wrapped up in the same thing. Bowie's philosophical knowledge adds up to a fascinating interpretation of the 20th century, as well as a unique perspective on the purpose of life. The late 19th century, there was a people were so aggrandized with their own sense of science and, and uh, um, the aftermath of the Enlightenment and how man himself could improve the world. Um, then, of course, it led to things like Nietzsche saying God is dead, and it led to Einstein's discovery that, that time and space aren't what we thought they were, and Freud an understanding of another kind of human inside the human. All these things culminated in the idea that everything we'd known before was wrong. Everything. So we start out the 20th century with this clean slate. We are now the gods. And the greatest thing that we could do as God during that century was create the bomb. That was what we were good at doing. And I think that in itself, in the 50s and 60s, the repercussions of what we had done by standing in for this idea of morality ourselves, creating it all ourselves, so destroyed our fix on what we should be doing in life that we're still living through that chaos right now. We have no spiritual lives to speak of. There's quasi-new religions, but there is no direct sense of what our purpose is anymore. Now, that may be a good thing because it may, it may show itself to be that we in fact do, don't have a purpose. Are we, are we big enough and mature enough to exist like that? Are we mature enough to accept that there's no plan, there's no going somewhere, there's no uh, gift of immortality at the end of this if we evolve. If we evolve far enough, we may never have to die. I mean, that seems to be the reach from the past. Well, maybe we can't live like that. Maybe we have to exist and live on the idea that we have one day at a time to live. And can we do that? Because if we could do that, we may be serving some, really some great thing. In 1999, David made a highly accurate prediction of the Internet's impact on society and popular culture, both in a positive and negative way. Up until at least the mid 70s, really felt that we were still living under the, uh, in the guise of a, a single and absolute created society where there were known truths and known lies and there was no kind of duplicity or pluralism about the things that we believed in. That started to break down rapidly in the 70s and the idea of a, a duality in the way that we live. There are always two, three, four, five sides to every question. That the singularity disappeared. And uh, that, I believe, has produced such a medium as the internet, which absolutely establishes and shows us that we are living in total fragmentation. You don't think that some of the claims being made for it are, are hugely exaggerated? I mean, when the telephone was invented, people made amazing claims. I for know it. the NFTs, president, for example. The president at the time, when it was first invented, he was outrageous. He said he foresaw the day in the future when every town in America would have a telephone. Now that, what, how dare he claim like that? Absolute bullshit. 
No, you see, I don't, I don't, I don't agree. End, I don't agree. I think the internet. I don't think we've even seen the tip of the iceberg. I think the potential of what the internet is going to do to society, both good and bad, is unimaginable. I think we're actually on the cusp of something exhilarating and terrifying. It's just a tool, though, isn't it? No, it's not. No. No, it's an alien life form. But that's, it's a simply a different delivery system there. You're arguing about something more profound. Oh, yeah, I'm talking about the, the, the actual context and the state of content is going to be so different to anything that we can really envisage at the moment. Where the interplay between the user and the provider will be so insimpatico, it's going to crush our ideas of what mediums are all about. Uh, but it's happening in every form. It's happening in visual art. The breakthroughs of the early part of the century with people like Duchamp who were so prescient in what they were doing and putting down. The idea that the piece of work is not finished until the audience come to it and add their own interpretation. And what the piece of art is about is the grey space in the middle. That grey space in the middle is what the 21st century is going to be about. Rest in peace, David. Your music and intellect will remain far after your passing. Roger Waters is one of the most influential artists of his time. In 1965, he co-founded the legendary rock group Pink Floyd. Since then, not only has he written some of the most progressive rock and roll music of all time, but he's been one of the most active celebrities when it comes to advocating human rights. My platform is small. It is the 30 articles of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights from 1948 in Paris. All 30 articles are very pertinent. They talk about uh, every man, woman and child in the, on this earth deserves the right to life, the right to shelter, the right to an adequate supply of food and the right to health care and the right to education. Those are the basic fundamental human rights. Freedom, life, the right to life is the most fundamental one. What, what, what could I say uh, as another fellow guy in the rock business to people who say, stick to the music, Raj, don't, don't talk to us about this stuff. We just want to hear you thump your bass and sing a song. What the hell is the difference between somebody who pays a bass for a living and a milkman, you know, or a psychiatrist, or a politician, or a whatever? You either have a heart or you don't. So even if we all observed the 30 articles of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights from Paris in 1948, all political problems would disappear. All of them, overnight. It's as simple as that, but we don't. We care about profit. So capitalism is a huge blight on all our lives. Unfortunately, it's been, it's been accepted and adopted by some of the most powerful countries on earth. And in consequence, we live in a world that's being destroyed hand over fist. Pestilence is everywhere. War and pestilence is everywhere.
Is it too late? Maybe it's too late, but maybe it isn't. Maybe if we actually maybe if we all so that's what I would say to these pricks who would say to me, <laughs> Well you just play your bass, play the music cue. <laughs> I have a heart and I care about people and I care about this planet. It breaks my fucking heart to think of all my brothers and sisters all over the world who never have the opportunity that I do, that I have carved out for myself, to walk my path with love and grace as far as I possibly can. It's what a wonderful, wonderful, amazing, amazing world it is. And when you take a child and you sit them down with a praying mantis and go, look at that, now just watch it for a minute. And just isn't that incredible? Look at the way it's, things work. You know, it, it really is quite... And children are open to that. And But you can destroy them so quick because they're vulnerable. The world is divided into masters and slaves. There's about eight masters and like 350 million slaves. And so... And most of the slaves never get a chance. They never get a quiet few seconds to sit and go, whoa, hold on a minute. What do I want? What do I want? What do I want? You know, they're like bombs are going off and so they dive into the Mediterranean and drown because they have no, there's no recourse for them. They can't do anything else. We know why the bombs are going off because rich bombs are trying to steal everything that's under the ground. That's all. It's really, really, really simple. But they also control the media. They control all the mainstream media. They control all the TV. They control all the newspapers. They control, and yet we don't rise up as a as a mass of people and go. Do you think we're stupid? Because we know the answer. Yeah, they do. Yeah, yeah. and they're being right. We are. Yeah, sadly, and we're incredibly badly educated. If you've ever seen a Roger Waters concert. You know how much work goes into the production of the show and how powerful of a message Roger brings to his audience. It takes an army to put together this kind of a show. As busy as Roger is, he makes an effort to have a relationship with every single person that's part of his crew. I make an absolute point of knowing the name of every single person in the crew when I go on the road. So, so the last us and them when we were traveling all around, there's 185 people. Well, that's an actual effort, obviously. Not with the 60 or so that I know, because I've known them for fucking ever in their first time seven. But I actually have Polaroid pictures and I sit and learn them so that when I'm walking around, I can go, hey, Bob, how are you? How are you? Is everything all right or what? And they go, fucking hell, he knows my name. <laughs> you know? And yeah, I do, because I think it's really important. And I love I, the feeling of being out on the road with those people, with my crew. It's quite, um, is is a great feeling. And knowing that everybody knows that you value them. And I do value them. These are amazing people. I mean, hardworking it's, a, it's amazing the work people have to do on a rock and roll show. At 78 years old, he's still touring to this day. 
Roger has a sense of pride in his ability to continue his musical career, but his main focus is not on selling the most records. He believes that the reward is in the work. When you look at what we call on television the wide shot, of what are you most proud? Right now, I'm going out on the road because I care about stuff. So I'm really very, very, very blessed that I still care about things and that I still have my health and enough strength to fight the good fight. Um, that's what makes me... That's, I'm proud of it, although it's not my doing. I mean, I, it, there's no way that you can dictate that any of these things sh should happen. But as long as, you know, I'm, as long as I've got my health, I, I shall keep doing s something like this because I, I need to. I, I have a sort of need to do it. As I've said often to people in the past, the work is its own reward. We don't need a re another reward. It's the doing of the work is the reward. Music, it comes in the moment. It, it, I like to sort of sometimes use the analogy of painting. Um, so it's like when Van Gogh puts that last bit of yellow on his sunflowers or whatever, in that moment when he stands back, I don't know how what he was thinking or, but this is what happens when I've written a song or I'm recording a piece of music. There is one fleeting moment when you go, oh, that is good. And then it's gone. And it never comes back. You never hear it again the same way. And whether Van Gogh ever sort of saw the painting again in the same way after that moment when he knew it was finished, I don't know. I don't know why I told you that. <laughs> well, can you think of a, a time when you were writing your music, writing your song, when you had that moment? Um, yeah. I mean, just recently, because I can only think, of, think about the most recent work. But when you say that, there's a, there's a song on the record called The Last Refugee, which is very, really, really beautiful. And it's got this these lines at the end, but... It's, it's really the music, but it talks about you'll find my child down by the shore um, digging around for a chain or a bone, searching the sand for a relic washed up by the sea, the last refugee. That's making me nearly... I know it sounds ridiculous talking about No, it doesn't sound ridiculous at the all. The idea of being in a future where... The idea even of a refugee is a relic from the past. It's so moving to me. Wim Hof is an extreme athlete whose feats have gone beyond what most people would consider humanly possible. He's broken numerous world records, climbed Mount Everest and Kilimanjaro with nothing but shorts and shoes, conquered the furthest swim under ice, ran the fastest half marathon barefoot on ice and snow, the list goes on. But what sparked this superhuman ability? You may think no other man is capable of these amazing acts. Although Vim claims that all humans possess the power to achieve these incredible accomplishments, what I find fascinating about Vim's story is how it all started. After the death of his first wife, Vim found himself in search of meaning for life. One day he was out for a walk at home in Amsterdam, when he felt a sudden connection with nature. 
Intuitively, he submerged himself into freezing water. In this interview, he takes us back to where it all began. And the question is, what did he discover about being human? Many books I've been reading, many esoteric disciplines I went in because I felt there is more between heaven and the earth. But I couldn't find it. And I had this feeling inside. And uh, after years, I found myself in the park in Sunday morning and uh, was, you know, pondering uh, within once again, like always. It doesn't stop, you know. If you really search for something and you haven't found it, your brain just keeps on. You're into your mind. So this Sunday morning, I was walking through the park and I just felt this attraction to this thin layer of ice on the water. I looked around, there was somebody, the idea came up. I go into that water. Once again, I looked around, I undressed myself, went into the water. I felt deeply inside. It silenced me. I felt this is it, without thinking. And it, that, that moment, it just, it, it's blank, but it's there. And it made me feel really good. Just one minute, it was the first time. I played a little bit with the eyes, and I was witnessing, I had no, I didn't feel the cold whatsoever. I felt power, power, just internal power which is connection and this connection <clears throat> if you feel it and you get out then you have triggered something inside something deep and it makes you feel good because feeling good is deep connection and I took it home I wasn't thinking about it I was just into this feeling gave me a rush so the other day I came back and I did the same thing. I had the same feel. And I came back every day. And I lengthened in time because I felt I was able to do that. At a certain uh, moment, I began to become aware I was breathing more deeper. And as deeper breathing brought about, an oxygenation in my body, tingling and all kinds of sensations, and I could, after like 25 of these breaths, I could ice water, stay five minutes, six minutes, seven minutes, no problem, no force, pure silence from within and out. Connection. I'm, I was totally convinced uh, within and always went back, always went back. Because people thought of me as a crazy man who's gonna sit in the freezing waters like 35 years ago. And he, I mean, he must be crazy. And, a, they, and what people think, it affects in a certain way. Oh, I just kept it secluded for tw about 25 years, it was. Uh, I, I was always going into the park uh, where I lived in the south of in Amsterdam. In the squat place, it was. 
and uh, just between two trees. Nobody could see me there. I just did my thing because I just felt very peaceful, powerful, silenced. Later, I began to know, yes, uh, the call brings you in a deeper connection with the deeper parts of the brain, which is the adrenaline, the reptilian mode, the primitive brain, the reactionary brain, which is not thinking, but only feeling. This is what I was looking for, something beyond religion, beyond concepts of philosophy, or if you do this, this happens, all kinds of disciplines, but never this depth in my brain connected with the depth of my body. And from there I became aware that, uh, that there is a deeper power and I challenged it and at certain moments I could sit, sit all night long in the shorts outside in freezing temperatures. That's power, that's something beyond the, uh, what we think. It's just feeling, pure feeling. Because I've always been looking for what, what, what is life about? What is the real sense of life? And, and you cannot find it in the books. You are the book. You got to open up and begin to read, to be conscious of the, what you have inside. And that's my convinc uh, uh, conviction. We are made to be happy, strong and healthy. You know, after, after 30 years of mockery, which I endured, it's belief. A man is not able to endure 30 years of mockery if he hasn't got this belief, you know. I see this chair, this is here. You cannot make me say it's not here. What I felt was there. You, Nobody could say, hey, you don't, what you do is craziness. No, I felt a whole lot better than ever before. My conviction is, once again, we are meant to be able to tap in anytime into our system to make us happy, strong, healthy. What does a mother want for her child? And the mother is the one who gives the birth to our existence. She wants it to be happy, strong and healthy. And if there is a lack, you compensate with possession, with money, security, in this all insecure, because you cannot guarantee health, happiness and strength. Uh, once I, I encountered the cold, I, I stopped reading, stopped everything. Uh, it's all on the surface. The whole guru thing and the Buddha thing and the, and the Catholics and all that. It's, what, what is it? There's a whole lot of war going on. A whole lot of controversy because they quarrel on the surface. Going back to the, this reactionary part of ours, which is a lizard. A lizard is not thinking about, this, uh, about the taxes and, and, and what he's going to do tomorrow and uh, how to uh, make secure his house and uh, living and all that and the mathematics or whatsoever. He's just into food, freeze, fight and flight. That's it, very primitive. That's real. Did you ever see a rabbit going to a psychiatrist 
or a pharmacy or a hospital, it's because their pH levels are all, all okay. One day before a rabbit is dying, it's still able to flee, fight, uh, uh, to, to eat, to do it all. Then it dies and it sleeps and it dozes off, gets into the central nervous system and probably he's gonna go to rabbit heaven. I mean, in a, going into this nice light. And that's why they don't have fear. They have fear, real fears. Flee, fight, uh, predators and all that. But we, with our pH levels, we are really down because we think we are superior to nature. We dress up all the time. We disconnect ourselves from nature because there is no stimulation, it's a neutral zone. The brain-body connection gets weakened, therefore, and we create low pH values because of that. Oxygen is less because there is no stimulation. If, if it would be colder here, you would breathe deeper naturally. And that activates all the veins. We got, we got 125,000 kilometers, which is about 80,000 miles of uh, capillaries. Uh, arteries, uh, veins, and uh, all channels of blood. And blood transports oxygen. Oxygen is being needed to make the right pH levels in, in the body. Everywhere. The way nature has meant it to be is alkaline. And for example, in the stomach, needs to be very acidic. The lung slime needs to be very acidic. Nature has, did a perfect job until we began to screw it up and do these clothes and we go on the catwalk and oh, look how beautiful the stigma. Sometimes you gotta go back to the way the nature has meant us to be. If we are able to make iPhones, right now an iPhone has more intelligence than the whole Apollo 13 project. We got all the technology. But we cannot have control over our happiness, strength and health. It's time we take this intelligence and go within. Kyle C. started his journey as a comic at just 12 years old. By the time he was 18, he had become the youngest headlining comedian in the Pacific Northwest. Since then, he's had over 100 appearances on film and television, hosted number one specials on Comedy Central, as well as ranked number one on Comedy Central stand-up showdown. Although in 2010, his career path took a drastic turn. Cease came to the realization that he no longer wanted to be a comic and started going down the path of becoming a transformational speaker. This is the story of Kyle's own transformation. The constant feeling of when something happens, I'll be happy. I, I would just always think when I get the next gig or when I get the next movie or when I book this part or when I get to date this person, I'll be happy. And... I think one of my first awakenings was the revelation that I was always thinking that and seeing other people thinking that. A lot of other people were very successful in their head thinking, when do I book the next movie? When do I get the next thing? And I know that a lot of listeners watching this right now have in their head right now something that when they go, when that happens, I'll be happy. When I get that job, when I let go of this relationship, when I get over this addiction, I'll be happy. And I started realizing that as I was getting these things, 
they were the source of my happiness, so I was actually in fear. I'd be like, well, what if I lose this? And, and I better get the next thing, and I better keep going. And it just started this constant chasing. And a huge shift in my life was when I left the thinking of when something happens, I'll be happy, and moved towards a new belief, which is when I'm happy, things will happen. And by happy, I mean okay with all of myself. I mean, not just big fake smile, but okay with myself as is. Okay with my pain, okay with my shame, okay with my darkness, okay with my anger, okay with myself. And I've been in an ongoing practice of being okay with both myself, the world, and just becoming more and more present and accepting of myself. And ironically, as I'm not chasing certain things, more amazing things just come to me. And I started realizing that if I'm chasing something, I'm actually saying it completes me. And if I'm instead connected to myself and more okay with myself, other things that I wasn't even anticipating and could be even more of an amazing surprise can come to me. And how many times do we need to keep getting the thing before we realize that's not where our happiness is? So I stopped chasing and started being. I started listening. And this is where life actually told me, you're done being a stand-up comic and I have more exciting things for you that you would never have thought of. And I realized that there is a space that has something bigger for me than anything that my ego could have come up with. And so that's what I do. I listen to the now and then do what it says. Living in the moment is the way Kyle lives his life. Living this way not only makes it easier to be honest with yourself, but also shows others what the real you is really all about. Um, I feel like if I planned ahead, you wouldn't be hearing me. You'd be hearing something I prepared. Mm. And if I was doing something that I prepared, it would be because I want to get something from someone. You know, we say, am I doing this right? Am I doing this wrong? That question implies there is a right or wrong way. And how do you measure that? Like, did it sell something? Did people like it? Did I get approval from the audience? So I also feel that in the moment, we're always feeling something. Mm. Like, if you just say what you're feeling, then you actually create a space where the person across from you or the audience goes, oh, I know what that feels like and I can connect with you. But in trying to prepare something, often we block what we're feeling and then bring something that we prepared earlier in the day and people miss out on the real you. This is the thing is we live in a world where we don't say what we're thinking. We say what we think people want to hear. For me, not preparing is so much easier and so much more true. And there's so many amazing moments from that. Right? And people go, I don't know how you do that. And I remind people, well, when you go to a restaurant, you don't have a set list. You don't sit there and think, first I'll ask them if they have pets and if they like ice cream. You'll actually just say what you feel. And in that space, you have a two-hour off-the-cuff conversation. So that's all we're doing. So what I believe is all you are is this moment right now. Everything that you perceive about yourself from your past, it doesn't exist right now. You're just sitting here. So if you take a deep breath, you might have these little images of what your past story is, like things that happened to you, things that you feel reactions to, whatever. But if I actually realize that everything that I think I am from past accomplishments or future accomplishments or that I, I have as goals or whatever are not me, that I'm just this space that those ideas show up in, then often they might leave, right? Let's say you have a thought, no one likes me because no one liked me at that one thing in the past. Okay, who's saying that? 
It's just a thought. It's not you. It's a thought that comes from evidence of one thing in the past, but that doesn't mean that's you, right? So that thought shows up and you just let it be there. So where are these thoughts coming from? They're just thoughts that we have, these things that we think. And usually we think that those thoughts are bigger than us and then we resist them. All those things that we think we are that feel limited. You know, I'm not enough, I'm not worthy, I'm scared. The only thing we have as evidence of that is our past, right? I'm not enough because that one time. He doesn't know my story though. My story, my past, it's not what you are. Most people think the things that are temporary are the permanent things, right? The temporary passing, I'm going through a breakup. You don't understand that in a month you're gonna be okay. When you're in a low, when you're feeling bad, you think that thing you're feeling is how you're gonna feel forever, which is what makes it feel worse. You know what I mean? When you're in a low, you're like, this is my life now. This is it. Or when you're in a high, you also get extra high because you think, this is my life now. I've fallen in love with this person. So we're together forever and I'm always going to feel like this. They're the one. Then a month later, you're like, is this my life forever? <laughs> and, you're, and, then, and then it goes back and forth and you don't get that all of your emotions are temporary. They're passing things. But there is this thing in this moment right now that I feel is permanent. This thing that you can feel, just this silence, this space. I've had so many things that have shown up and left that I once thought were my reality, that it feels like parts of me continue to die, and I allow them to die. Despite all of his massive accomplishments, Kyle claims that they're in the past and they don't matter anymore. So most of our pain comes from believing, I believe, that we should keep holding on to these things that are really heavy in our lives. Even in physical examples, like just there's a lot of us that have an attic full of things, right? A lot of those things are things that your past thinks you should have, but they're not necessarily what your heart would want right now, right? Like this is something I inherited or I should keep this and one day show my kids, right? So to give you an example for me, I had a top Comedy Central special in 2006 and I was cleaning a couple years ago and I found this huge poster and it was something I'm so proud of and I was like, should I keep this? And I was like, my mind comes up with a justification for why I should keep that. And I believe when your mind comes up with a justification, that means you don't want it. I don't justify to anybody why I do this for a living. I don't justify who my family is. I don't justify who my best friends are to anybody. But there are some of us that have situations like, well, I do not like that person, but they were nice to me that one day. I don't like, yeah, that, that job sucks, but I will get medical in six months, right? You're allowing yourself to lower yourself to your mind understanding why you're ignoring your body. So I believe there's two voices that we all have. There's a first voice that tells you the next step and it can only tell you the next step, right? So those are those quick inspired moments that show up that say things like, what if we left this company? You can't see what'll happen, right? It's that first voice. You, it's before you realize you might go broke. It's that first moment. <laughs> what if we leave this company? Or what if we ask that person out? Or that inspired moment that goes, what if I just flew to Italy right now? Or started that book or that band? Or took piano lessons for a year and just locked them down now? Whatever it is. It's an inspired thing. You know what I mean? I believe that feeling is a preview. But it can't tell you why you should do that because you've never done that. So this first voice, that voice that we hear in our body, especially when you're silent or you're in a really good mood, you're laughing and you say something like, we should 
whatever, say something kind of crazy, that's amazing. How free would you be if you were just like, yeah, we might screw this up, but awesome. I love that, right? What will I also become if I'm willing to make a mess, but also it's my calling, it's something in me that says I need to do this. So that's the first voice. But we've trained ourselves to ignore this voice and listen to the second voice that I believe is a collection of the average society. You know, it's what we learned. It's the practical voice, the voice that says I need to be responsible. And it's the should voice. Whenever you say I should do, where are you getting that from? What society says. But we forget society's kind of crazy. There's a lot of unhappy people there, a lot of addictions, a lot of stuckness, right? A lot of murders, a lot of like, why are we using them as the, the bellwether that we should get our advice from, right? So this first voice goes, I think we should do this. And we go right to this voice that says why we shouldn't. Oh, and I went off on a tangent, but what I was going to say was with the poster, I thought I had a justification for why I should keep it. I, I one day might want to show a kid, if I have a child, like I might want to show them this poster. Which, by the way, what day will that be? Like, it's time for me to show you my accomplishment in 2006, honey. <laughs> like, we're holding things and we don't realize that day will never actually happen. So I took this poster to the garbage because it wasn't a 10 in my body. It's a story of who I was, not who I am now. And I said, I'm just going to release this. And it was scary as hell. And I feel, I feel the more scary it is, the more change you're going to feel. So I dropped it in the dumpster and I turned around and I had this freedom release. I unhooked myself from thinking I was that comedian. And I realized if I have a child one day, which I do now have, they'd much rather have my presence. My presence as many moments as possible than me bragging about some accomplishment I made 20 years ago. Most things that human beings do are not done consciously, unfortunately. It is mostly compulsively done and that is a whole problem with humanity. With the level of intelligence and competence that we have, the moment we function compulsively, we become destructive. If you become conscious, naturally you will curtail so many of your actions because they are absolutely unnecessary. See, everybody knows what is needed in the world. The most important thing needed is right now, we need pleasant human beings. Where should it start? With yourself. <laughs> At least you become peaceful, joyful, loving. At least this much you become. Rest we will see what to do. This… because there's only one problem on the planet, human being, isn't it? Human being is the flower of evolution, the peak of evolution. In terms of life, the heap of life that is there from microbial life to complex manifestation of life on this planet, you are on top of the world. But human beings are not experiencing their life like they are on top of the world. They are in the depths of misery compared to any other crea creature. A human being is miserable if he doesn't have food. If you give him food, he will feed his misery further. Simply because for all other creatures, nature has fixed their way of being. Nature has fixed how they should be. How a grasshopper should be, how a tiger should be, how an elephant should be, nature has fixed at least ninety percent of their life. Only ten percent latitude may be there for individual animals to find some expression for themselves. But in the case of a human being, a human being comes largely unformed. 
only ten percent is fixed, ninety percent is left loose. This is what human beings are suffering. Human beings are not suffering their bondage, human beings are suffering their freedom. You are free to make yourself whichever way you want. See, no other creature on the planet is referred to as a being, only you are referred to as a being. People have given up how to be pleasant here. They are trying to export themselves somewhere and there are advertisements saying somewhere up there, there is a heaven where the utmost pleasantness will happen, peace will happen, joy will happen, bliss will happen, love will happen, everything is up there. This is because you have given up that you could be pleasant here <laughs> So if you export everything that's wonderful about a human being to another place, the world doesn't become better. We need to understand that whatever qualities that you're ascribing to God and whatever else that you have imagined in your mind, these are all qualities which are very essential for a human being to live a sensible life on this planet. So everybody knows this, that they need to be pleasant. It is not an idea or a philosophy, it is a longing. Life is longing to be experiencing life pleasantly, isn't it? There was one young man running around like his uh, tail is on fire. Then I asked, hey, what are you up to? He said, Sadhguru, I want to earn a billion dollars, billion dollars. I said, you don't worry, tomorrow I'll give you a billion dollars. Really, Sadhguru, you will give me a billion? Yes, I will give you a billion dollars. He had eight of his friends with him. I said, see these eight guys, I'm going to give each one of them ten billion dollars and I'll give you one billion dollars. Sadhguru, Sadhguru, why they're getting ten am... Are your life's ambition was only to get one billion dollars. What are you complaining about? The problem is if everybody else has it, you cannot enjoy it. So you have a sickness, you only enjoy other people's failures. Right from nurse, kindergarten, school, you have been taught this, you must be number one. Then what must be the others? What must the other children be? They must be all below you. So you always been taught that joy and happiness is always about enjoying other people's failures, other people's incapabilities. This is not joy, this is sickness. If you get rid of this sickness, everything will be fine. Now, I've heard you talk about time and energy in a, in a different way, and it's really impacted me. So, what can you offer those who are worried about wasting time? If you're against uh, wasting time, that means you're against meditation. Time is uh, not something that you use. Time is the basis of your life. Your life is time. So, should you necessarily do something? That's an individual choice. Time is a very relative experience. On a given day, you're very joyful. Have you noticed on that day, twenty-four hours, poof, went, went off like a moment? Another day, you're miserable or de depressed, twenty-four hours feels like ten thousand years. So only miserable people can have a long life. So those miserable people raise all these kind of questions and make it like it's some great philosophy. Life is not a philosophy. Philosophy is a silly explanation to a life which is a phenomena beyond all explanations. You can only experience this, you can't deduct it into your philosophy. The moment you deduct it into your philosophy, you become a constipated life. That means it happens little by little. It doesn't happen like an explosion <laughs> What do you think it is that's getting in the way of people's potential? 
Well, uh, most things that human beings do are not done consciously, unfortunately. It is mostly compulsively done and that is the whole problem with humanity. With the level of intelligence and competence that we have, the moment we function compulsively, we become destructive. If you become conscious, naturally you will curtail so many of your actions because they are absolutely unnecessary. Either you're trying to be better than somebody which you can never be and uh, or you're trying to do something in competition with the rest of the world, wanting to prove some nonsense that nobody's uh, convinced about anyway. And all these countless number of people who existed on this planet before you and me, all those idiots also were doing the same thing. If life is a race, what is the goal? You must get to the finish line faster than others. Finish line is death, so if you want to win the race, you must go ahead of me, please don't do that. I am older than you, let me go first, okay? <laughs> so, <laughs> this whole nonsense about wanting to be better than somebody is happening because you have not found any sense of profoundness in your own existence. If you pay enough attention to life, then you will see, when I say life, life is a, an explosion happening all around you. When people use the word life, they are talking about their work, they're talking about their family, their relationships, their wealth, their money. No, these are all accessories, frills to life. So let's not think too much about ourselves. If we understand the context of our existence, we are just a small pop-up on this planet and will pop out. If we know this, keeping your life pleasant, profound, if necessary in action, impactful, that is a choice but keeping yourself pleasant and making the experience life of the experience of life profound whether you do it with activity or without activity that's an individual choice but to do it without activity is much harder than to do it with activity most people who are lazy are also bitter about something there there is no sense of profoundness to their life they always feel insufficient that's not the way to live if you are very pleasant and you have a profound experience of life, you have a right to do nothing, absolutely nothing. In tonight's Health Edge, the growing trend of cyberbullying. 5,000 school employees walked out to demand increased education funding. It ultimately, could, could every kid just get, uh, get their education through a screen? The more we are taught to list and resent the things of which we were deprived as children, the more, the more we live in that anger and frustration and the more we remain children. This is the kind of paradox, I think, of, of what it is to be a halfway intelligent American right now and probably also a Western European, is that there are things we know are right and good and would be better for us to do. But constantly it's like, yeah, but you know, it's so much funnier and nicer to go do something else. And who cares? And it's all bullshit anyway. And for me personally, I, I don't know that it's really ever been all that different. I think probably American education used to be a little bit better and a little bit more difficult. And children had no choice but to realize that there were certain things that were hard and involved a certain amount of drudgery that were actually very satisfying at the end of it. But for the most part, I think in the U.S., people have been, who've been doing, quote, serious stuff, which is harder and stranger, have always played to a much smaller 
audience. There's a difference, though, I think, between being mildly bored, but then there's another kind of boredom that I think you're talking about, which is um, uh, reading. Reading requires sitting alone by yourself in a quiet room, and I have friends, intelligent friends, who don't like to read because they get it's not just bored. There's an uh, there's an almost dread that comes up. I think. About having to be alone and having to be quiet, and you see that when you walk into most public spaces in America, it isn't quiet anymore. They pipe music through, and the music's easy to make fun of because it's usually really horrible music. But it seems significant that we don't want things to be quiet ever anymore. And and to me, I don't I don't know that I could defend it, but that seems to me to have something to do with when when you feel like your the purpose of your life is to gratify. Yourself and get things for yourself and go all the time. There's this other part of you that's the same part that can kind of is almost hungry for silence and quiet and thinking really hard about the same thing for maybe half an hour instead of 30 seconds that doesn't get fed at all, and it it makes itself felt in a, in the body in a kind of dread in here. I don't know whether that makes a whole lot of sense, but I think it's true that here in the U.S., every year the culture gets more and more hostile. I, and I don't mean hostile like angry; just in, it becomes more and more difficult to ask people to read or to look at a piece of art for an hour, or to listen to a piece of music that's complicated and that takes work to understand. Because, well, there are a lot of reasons, but particularly now in computer and internet culture, everything is so fast. And uh, and the faster things go, the more we feed that part of ourselves, but don't feed the part of ourselves that likes that likes quiet, that can live in quiet, you know, that can live without any kind of stimulation. Well, particularly if you have a remote control, see when that happens, you go to a different channel, and if you don't like that channel, you go to a different channel. One of the reasons I can't own a TV is I've started having this thing where I become convinced there's something really good on another channel and that I'm missing it. And so instead of watching, I'm scanning anxiously back and forth for this thing that I think I want that I don't even know what it is. And what it is is too much good stuff combined with my sick little head that thinks there's always something a little better on the next thing. And all you have to do, you don't have to get up now to change it. That's that. That was the. The problem when it became easy, you just had to move your thumb and change it. That's when we were screwed. When I was young, uh, or younger, I used to. There's a way in which in which we in America are comfortable, very comfortable. Some of the, some of the political and social corrections that I thought should be brought about would happen when there was some sort of cataclysm or misfortune where we weren't as comfortable anymore. Um, the fact that we now have clear evidence that the way we live and the relationships we have with various other countries are causing some people to hate us so much that they want to kill us, and may succeed in killing a great many of us, frightens me only because when I was growing up, one of the mythological periods for us growing up is the Great Depression. Where the story goes, everyone pulled together. There were hard times, and no one had enough. But everyone pulled together, and everybody.、Um, it seems to me now 
that the country's reaction to feeling frightened and insecure is to buy sports utility vehicles that are large and massive and tank-like and make individual people feel safer, but also get four miles to the gallon in a country where gasoline is probably one-fifth as expensive as it ought to be. There's a sanity in Europe about gasoline prices and fuel consumption that there isn't here yet. And, and yet are voting for people who are deciding to go over and, and, and very possibly kill hundreds of thousands of civilians in order to kill a, a few enemies. None of which is important, but the fact that no one here is talking about the connection between how we live and what we drive and the things that are happening, the, the speed with which it's become those bad people, those bad fanatics, they're evil. What they really hate is our freedom and, and our way of life, which is just hard to swallow, right? Like who hates freedom? You know, people hate people, not freedom. Um, I now don't know what's gonna happen. Um, and I'm, I am as an American as scared, not since I was a little boy and I worried about the US and the Soviet Union having an intercontinental Remember, not since that have I been this scared. And what's, and this is totally personally, but I'm more scared of us than I am of anybody else. And that, that's that's a bleak place to be. I don't I don't think this is an evil country. I don't think American people are evil. I think we've had it very easy materially for a long time, and we've gotten very little help in understanding things that are important besides being comfortable and I, I don't think anybody knows how we will react if things get really hard here. The fact that we're strong militarily and economically is a good thing but it's also a frightening thing. The thing about it is is that in, the, in America we think of rebellion as this very sexy thing and that it involves you know action and force and, and looks good. And my, my guess is the forms of rebellion that will end up changing anything meaningfully here will be very quiet and very individual and uh, and probably not not all that interesting to look at from the outside. I, I'm now hoping for, for less interesting rather than more interesting. Violence is interesting and um, horrible corruption and scandals and rattling sabers and talking about war and demonizing a billion people of a different faith in the world. Those are all interesting. Sitting in a chair and really thinking about what this means and uh, why the fact that what I drive might have something to do with how people in other parts of the world feel about me is, isn't interesting to anybody else. The world often sells us a complete and total lie and not a lot of people who are on their way to getting there are able to blow a whistle and say, hang on, hang on, hang on. It almost cost me everything. If you knew the cost of being a rock star, if you were standing right next to some of your heroes who have given their lives to playing Major League Baseball, if you knew the cost of a NASA astronaut, if you knew the cost of someone who's gone to medical school once, twice, three times. You want to know the cost of what you're gonna give yourself to. Some cost is absolutely worth it. It's the greatest thing you could ever do. It's sacrifice, it's perseverance, it's everything that you've heard about. It's what it takes to get from here to there. Other costs that are very rarely talked about, if I'm gonna see my face on a magazine cover and I'm gonna play concerts 250 nights a year, and I'm gonna do that year after year after year. And this place actually is not big enough. 
The next time we play, we're going to sell out something twice that size. And then that's not big enough. We're going to sell out something. There's never enough. And that I can speak to. In the music industry, there is never enough. That's the only industry I'm going to speak to. But my guess is if you were to ask other people in this room that represent other industries, there is never enough. There will never be enough accolades. There will never be enough paycheck increases. There will never be enough awards. There will never be enough. And as a musician, when we were starting to believe that we got to play bigger places and we got to sell more CDs and we need to have more fame, we nearly lost our own families. We nearly lost our own best friendships. We couldn't say when we had been in our communities last. We would say the same flipping thing night after night after night on stage. And we used to say we would never, we'll never be those guys. We'd go see one of our favorite bands play and they'd, they would joke one night and you're like, that is hilarious. The second night when the joke is in the same place and then if I got to go backstage and meet so-and-so and the closer I got to them, the more I realized that, oh man, the closer I get, the sadder they seem to be. Not like someone who's bigger than life and is about to inspire me. They might inspire me in the other direction, away from leaving community, leaving friendships, putting my eye on, I am going to be the biggest, baddest, most well-known rock star. I'm going to make millions. I'm going to sell millions. I'm going to have millions of people singing songs at the cost of your heart, at the cost of your own heartbeat. Some cost is not worth it. Some cost is awesome, okay? Some cost is not worth it. Some cost is awesome. As you go through your life trying to figure out what your dream is, please ask people who have gone before you, what's the cost? What does it take? What will I give up? And if what you're giving up is in kind of the beautiful cost category, go. Go, 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 and bring someone with you that can keep you moving forward. If the cost is your own heart, your own contentment, your own peace, your own rootedness, I want you to ask a lot of people in your life, would, would this be worth it? Would that be worth it for me? And do not waste big chunks of your life and don't put yourself in a position where a third or fourth divorce is the norm and don't put yourself in a place where you have five homes up on the top of, uh, of these hills and you don't know which one you're gonna go to. Don't amass things, don't grow things, don't give your life to things that will end up oppressing you and holding you down. Don't do it, don't, it the cost is not worth it. I think every one of us is love and every one of us is fear. And what you feed is gonna win. And what the world feeds, if you live by the world standards, is going to build up your fears. We don't have to look very much further than what we put on TV. We put on TV. You want to see bad news? Stop playing. Value something else. You know who they're playing to? You. Us. We're the audience. What's on stage is defined by the audience. Why do we focus on terrorism? Why? Over and over and over and over and over again. Car crashes, famine. I want stories of radical love 15 times a day. I hate the word terrorism. I hate it so much. It should exist in like the tiniest font and um, 
maybe italics that makes it harder to read and lowercase, it exists. It should not be louder than this drum. That word is crushing the world because it's on our marquee. We have made it the biggest, scariest, most massive font. It's on every country's television. How about this one? Will, Will some of you, even one of you, come up with what is the opposite word? The opposite word of terrorism that is going to overshine and crush that freaking ridiculous word and that you're going to be a part of it and we are going to be a part of it and then our news is going to start shining lights on it and I want that story more profoundly told than anything that's terrorist in this world. It should exist. The the word unfortunately has to exist but what is the opposite word? We are love and we are fear. And if you kick fear out of your own life as much as you can, you ask God to do the same, you ask him to put you in family, you ask him to put you in community, you give other people the privilege of telling you and reminding you who you are, the world changes. The things up on the marquee go away. New things replace. All right, I'm gonna leave you with this. The most powerful quote in my life. Our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It is our light, not our darkness, that most frightens us. We ask ourselves, who am I to be brilliant, gorgeous, talented, fabulous? Actually, who are you not to be? Who are you not to be? You are a child of God, every one of you with a heartbeat. Your playing small does not serve this world. It doesn't serve this room. It doesn't serve your family. It doesn't serve the school. Your playing small serves no one. There is nothing enlightened about shrinking so that other people won't feel insecure around you. We are all meant to shine as children do. We were born to make manifest the glory of God that is within us. It's not just in some of us, it's in everyone. It's not just in some of us, it's in everyone. And as we let our own light shine, we unconsciously give other people permission to do the same. What does your heart beat for? Now, can I take you back to your own childhood? Do you remember the occasion when you first felt consciousness of your own individual self? That was in my 11th year. There I suddenly, on my way to school, I stepped out of a mist. It was just as if I had been in a mist, walking in a mist, and I stepped out of it and I knew I am, I am, what I am. And then I thought, but what have I been before? And then I found that I was, that I had been in a mist. 
not knowing to differentiate myself from things. I was just one thing about among, among many things. Now, was that associated with any particular episode in your life, or was it just a normal function of adolescence? Well, uh, that's difficult to say. Uh, as far as I can remember, nothing had happened before that would explain this sudden coming to consciousness. You hadn't, for instance, been quarrelling with your parents or anything? No, no, no. Have you concluded what psychological type you are yourself? Naturally, I have devoted a great deal of attention to that <laughs> painful question, you know. And reached a conclusion? Well, you see, the, the type is nothing static. It, it changes with, in the course of life. Uh, but I most certainly uh, was characterized by thinking. I always thought, from early childhood on. And uh, I had a great deal of intuition too. And I had a definite difficulty with feeling. Uh, and my relation to reality was not particularly brilliant. I was often at variance with the reality of things. Now that gives you all the necessary data for, for the diagnosis. I remember you said that death is psychologically just as important as birth, and like it, it's an integral part of life, but surely it can't be like birth if it's an end, can it? Yes, if it's an end. And there we are not quite certain uh, about this end. Because, you know, there are these uh, peculiar faculties of the psyche that it isn't entirely confined to to space and time. You can have dreams or visions of the future. You can see round corners and such things. Only ignorance deny these, these facts. They are, it's quite evident that they do exist and have existed always. Now these facts be, show that the psyche, in part at least, is not dependent upon these confinements. And then what? When the psyche is not under that obligation to live in time and space alone, and obviously it doesn't, then in, uh, to that extent the psyche is not submitted to those laws. And uh, that means uh, a practical uh, um, in, uh, continuation of life of a sort of psychical existence uh, beyond time and space. Do you yourself believe that death is probably the end, or do you, do you believe that... Well, I, I can't say... You see, the word belief is a, dif a difficult thing for me. I don't believe. I must have a reason uh, for, for a certain hypothesis. Either I know a thing, and when I know it, I don't need to believe it. If I, I don't allow myself, for instance, to be, believe a thing just for the sake of believing it, uh, I, I can't believe it. But when there are sufficient reasons to, for a certain hypothesis, I shall accept these reasons, naturally. I should say, we have to reckon with the possibility of so-and-so. Uh, well, now, you've 
told us that we should regard death as being a goal yes. and that to shrink away from it is to evade life and yes. life yes. uh, What advice would you give to people in their later life to enable them to do this when most of them must in fact believe that death is the end of everything? Mm -hmm. Well, you see, is, I have treated many old people and it's quite interesting to, to watch what the unconscious is doing with the fact that it is apparently threatened with a complete end. Uh, it disregards it. It Life behaves as if it were going on. And uh, so I think it is better for all people to live on, to, to look forward to the next day, uh, as if uh, he had to spend centuries and then he lives properly. But when he is afraid, when he doesn't look forward, he looks back, he petrifies, he, he, he gets uh, stiff and, and uh, he dies before his time. But when he is living on, looking forward to the great adventure that is ahead, then he lives. And that is about what the unconscious is intending to do. Of course, it's quite obvious that we are all going to, to die, and this is uh, the, the, the sad fi finale of everything. Um, but uh, nevertheless, there is something in us that doesn't believe it, apparently. But it, this is merely a fact, a psychological fact. It doesn't mean to me that it proves something. It is simply so. And so when you think in a certain way, you may feel considerably better. And I think if you think along the lines of nature, then you think properly. And this leads me to the last question that I want to ask you. As the world becomes more technically efficient, it seems increasingly necessary for people to behave communally and collectively. Now, do you think it's possible that the highest development of man may be to submerge his own individuality in a kind of collective consciousness? That's hardly possible. I think there will be a, a reaction. A reaction will set in against this uh, communal uh, dissociation. You know, man doesn't stand forever his nullification. Once there will be uh, a reaction, and uh, I see, I see it setting in. You know, when I think of my patients, they all seek their own existence and to assure their existence against that complete atomization into nothingness or into meaninglessness. Man cannot stand a meaningless life. We think that when we experience regret, it's somehow an aberration, when in fact, everybody experiences regret. Regret makes us human. Regret is part of the human condition. What's more, we think that regret makes us weaker, when in fact, the research shows that, done right, regret can make us stronger, that we can enlist our regrets as a, an engine for forward progress. In a weird way, regret also taught me about what makes a good life because as I had you know, collected 16,000 regrets from people in 105 countries and when they told me their regrets 
in a sense, they were also telling me about what made life worth living. Like, I understand that no regrets philosophy. The problem is, is that it's not possible because we all have regrets. Now, we should try to minimize our future regrets, but the idea that you should never look backward on your life and say, oh, I wish I had done things differently is actually a terrible blueprint for living. Um, and, and I think one of the problems is, you know, especially in North America, is that we're a little over-indexed on positivity. You know, positive emotions are incredibly important and they should outnumber our negative emotions, but we need some negative emotions because they instruct us. And our most prominent negative emotion is regret because regret teaches us, it instructs us, it clarifies us. Uh, it clarifies what's, what we should be doing and how we should be doing it. And so we need to understand how to deal with our negative emotions. We can't ignore them like no regrets. We can't wallow in them. What we need to do is we need to think about our regrets. And when we think about our regrets, the evidence is pretty clear that they can help us make better decisions, solve problems faster, be better strategists, find greater meaning in our life. Regret hurts. There's no question about that. But here's the thing. Regret also instructs, and you can't have one without the other. So if you avoid the pain, you don't get any of the learning. So what you have to do is be able to process that pain. And I think there's a way for us to do that, to take our regrets, use them as signals. We haven't been taught to do that. That's the problem. We have this weird approach, we have this weird view of negative emotions. Like some of us think, oh, positive all the time. Da, 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 da. That leads to delusion. Some of us get so absorbed in our negative emotions that they, in some ways, exonerate us from making progress. That's a bad idea too. What we need to do is we need to process our negative emotions in a, in a, in a systematic way. And I, and I think there's a good way to do that. There's, there's some interesting research on this. One of the things that we, th we, we think about disclosure of our vulnerabilities and our setbacks and so forth is that people will like us less. And in fact, they actually like us more when we do that. And so I actually had a lot of respect for people willing to disclose and willing to explain. And I felt like I was actually helping them make sense of this regret. So it wasn't that much of a downer. The other thing about it, and which is this, is that over and over and over again, people kept talking about the same four core regrets. These four regrets are revealing. By, by revealing our regrets, we are revealing what we value the most. To me, these four core regrets operate as a photographic negative of the good life. That is, if we understand what people regret the most, we actually understand what they value the most. So in a weird way, these 16,000 regrets are not a downer as much as they are a pointer to what makes life worth living. The four regrets are these, foundation regrets. Foundation regrets are if only I'd done the work. These are regrets people have about not studying hard enough in university or um, not taking care of their health or smoking or not eating right or not saving money. Small decisions that accumulate to bad consequences. The second one, huge category, boldness regrets. These are regrets that people have that say, if only I'd taken the chance. They didn't start a business. They didn't ask that crush out for a date. They didn't travel. Uh, they had an opportunity at, at one point in their life to do something beyond play it safe. They chose not to do that and now they regret it. Third category are moral regrets. If only I'd done the right thing. These are people who at a certain point in their life could do the right thing or the wrong thing. They do the wrong thing and it still bugs them. 
which is in some way, its own way heartening. It shows that I think people want to be good. And the final one are connection regrets. Connection regrets are if only I'd reached out. And these are regrets about relationships, um, where you have a relationship, or you should have had a relationship, and it comes apart, usually through drifts, and you want to reach out, but you don't because you think it's going to be awkward and the other side's not going to care, so it drifts out even more, and then in, in some cases it, it ends up being too late. These four regrets, to me, reveal, as I said earlier, what makes life worth living. What do we want out of life? We want a stable foundation. We want some stability. We want a chance to do something. We want a chance to learn and grow and lead a psychologically rich life. We want to do the right thing. I'm convinced that most of us want to do the right thing. And what else do we want? We want love. We want connection to other people. So if I'm a, you know, a listener and I'm sitting here thinking, you know, there is a connection regret that I have. You know, I, I should reach out to that person. And there's probably a reason why I, I haven't. I mean, there's, there's something that's, that's blocking it. What would you suggest I do? Like, what, what's the, what unlocks that for somebody? Okay, really, really, really important. Okay, so I think the two barriers are this. You think it's going to feel awkward, and you think the other side is not going to care. And here's the reality, both the reality of all these people I interviewed, but also the reality of a lot of research in social science. It's much less awkward than you think. Two, the other side almost always cares. You're just wrong about that. And one of the things that I, one of the things that I did, I mean, I have a scene in the book where I talk to somebody who's saying, oh, I lost this, I, I drifted apart from this friend and I'm not sure I, would, I should reach out. And if I reach out, she's gonna think it's creepy. And I finally said, okay, hold on, hold on, hold on. How would you feel if she reached out to you? And she said, oh my God, that would be the greatest thing. I'd be so touched. And I'm like, well, hello. Like, you know, extrapolate from your own experience there. And, and, so, and so I really believe if there's a lesson in this book, it's certainly the lesson for me, is that if you are at the juncture that you described, should I reach out or should I not reach out, you've already answered the question. Uh, I, I think the lesson is always reach out. Don't ignore it, don't dodge it, just confront it. It's much less fearsome than you think. And this way that I think that we can process our regrets is very healthy. So, you know, like I, I feel like there's three simple steps that you can take to turn your regrets into engines for progress. One of them is to reframe, is to reframe the regret and the way you think about yourself. Um, so, you know, do you, so a lot of times when we have a regret, one reason that we try to avoid it is that if we really confront it, we start lacerating ourselves, saying, you, you know, our, our self-talk is, you're an idiot, what are you talking about? Um, and what we should do instead is, it sounds gooey, but what we should do instead is treat ourselves with kindness. There's a body of research in what's called self-compassion, which is treating ourselves with kindness rather than contempt. Um, thinking about our own missteps as part of the human condition, not something that only we do. Looking at our missteps not as fully definitional of who we are, but as just one part of who we are. And so just being a little better to ourselves. The second thing you can do, which we see, which is a reason why we had 16,000 people offer up their regrets, is disclosure. Disclosure is itself inherently valuable. We know that it relieves the burden, but the other thing, when we talk about our regrets or even write about them, we take this blobby, amorphous, negative emotion and convert it into words, and that makes it less fearsome and it begins the sense-making process. So there's a pile of evidence showing that talking about our regrets, even writing about them privately, 
is a way to defang them. And finally, what we need to do, which is essential, is we need to, you know, we can, we can look inward, all right, we can express outward, but then we gotta, we gotta move forward. And the way to do that, in my mind, is to take a step back and extract a lesson from it. Uh, what would you tell your best friend to do? Uh, if, you ha if you were looking back on this decision 10 years from now, what would you want to have done? If someone else were in your position, what would she do? And, and I think this process of looking inward and treating ourselves with some kindness, expressing outward and disclosing the regret as a way to make sense of it, and then moving forward by taking a step back and extracting a lesson is relatively simple to do and allows us to take these regrets and not be scared of them and not let them debilitate us, but to enlist them as forces for moving forward. What I like to do is, I'm sort of trying to reach the people on, on either side of that. So the people who feel debilitated by their regrets, I, you know, my view is, listen, take one, go through this process, you can enlist it as a force for good, but I also want to do a wake-up call to the people who think they don't have any regrets, because they're making, it, they're making a big mistake too. Um, and so what I want to do is, in some sense, I guess, normalize it because it is normal that's the thing like yeah, yeah. you know regrets are part of the human condition they exist for a reason they're part of our cognitive machinery the only people without regrets are five-year-olds people with brain damage and sociopaths the rest of us have regrets you know and so instead of denying that humanity let's embrace it and use it the unity rule is a key driving force in how I operate everything in my life. It means see yourself as, as a part of a larger whole, of a larger human species. Uh, do not cheat, do not manipulate, go into all relationships with a win-win attitude, never take advantage of people. I have no enemies, I have no ill will towards anyone, um, and I practice forgiveness every single day. I forgive every person, everything, everyone that has wronged me. Forgiveness is actually a superpower. Studies have shown that when you practice radical forgiveness, your life seems to get luckier. Your health improves. Your peace of mind goes up. Your sleep gets better. And so the unity rule is a key piece of that. It is the idea that unity is one of the most powerful value systems uh, anyone can have. I got really deep into exploring spirituality, altered states, concepts like intuition, um, mind over reality, and applying that to the real world, to the physical world. In the Western world, we get tricked into seeing the world from a particular lens, and that is the lens of the physical world, that everything that is real is that which we can touch. But in indigenous cultures of the world, they don't just function in the physical world. They have practices and rituals that help them go deep into the world of spirit, of mind, of soul. For example, lucid dreaming. Can you awaken in your dream and be in a dream world that is even more rich than the physical world? That means in this dream world, if you sip a cup of hot chocolate, it is so real, so delicious, it is tastier and better than any other hot chocolate you've ever tried in the physical world. And you'll remember it just like in the physical world. Now here's the thing though, these topics are real, but in the Western world, we often diminish them with the words woo-woo. So why is it that so many of us are resistant to these ideas? It is about the rational mind. And as we enter this era of the rational mind, rationalists look back at other subcultures in the human experience or pre-rational cultures and consider them obsolete. 
there's a new emergent era in human culture, and that is called transrational. And transrational is the era we're going into now. Transrational says, yes, okay, the magical thinking that was cool 2,000 years ago, that they are spiritual ideas that are powerful that we need to look at. And these spiritual ideas are increasingly being studied by science. So pre-rational is Moses parted the Red Sea. Pre-rational is that if I do a particular dance, I can make it rain. Rational is Silicon Valley. Rational is the microchip. Rational is Wall Street. Now, the purely rational mind, because you exist at this level, you are unaware of the level above you, transrational, but you know the level below you, pre-rational. So the rational mind, the people who use words such as this is too woo-woo, they're actually merging both because they cannot see the difference. So they assume that lucid dreaming and meditation and astral projection are the same as the belief that Moses parted the Red Sea or that you were born a sinner or that gay people are wrong because some dude in the sky said so 2,000 years ago. That is called the pre-trans policy. It's a philosophical idea that explains why some people are afraid to embrace these concepts. But when you understand the fallacy, you start to see how what we're going to talk about is actually really, really, really rational. In fact, it is the ultimate truth. And this physical world is the one that is actually an illusion. Stephen Kotler, who runs the Flow Genome Project in Silicon Valley, says, we live in a monophasic society, but Eastern and indigenous cultures are polyphasic. In other words, they don't just exist in the single waking state. They exist in multiple states. For example, the Achua people of the Amazon, they communicate in their dreams. So they literally use dream communication to talk across vast distances in the Amazon. A couple of decades ago, a friend of mine, Lynn Twist, started seeing an Achua face in her dream. And she would see this like Amazonian man with red marks on his face and he would come to her dream and ask her for help. And she couldn't understand what was going on. Lynn Twist is one of the biggest fundraisers in the world for charitable causes. She wrote a book called Soul of Money. One day she described this strange face that was popping into her dreams to a friend. And he goes, oh, those markings, that's the Achua people. So she got connected. She flew to visit the Achua people. And it turned out they had been summoning her. These people were using dreams to communicate with a Western woman to bring her into their village. Now what happened next was pretty, pretty damn cool. Lynn Twist founded an organization called Pachamama and together they were able to preserve some 10 million acres of Amazon rainforest land from logging. But it started because these Achua people were able to project their consciousness into her dream, know exactly who to pull, the number one fundraiser in the Western world and bring her into their fold. So, what do we know from a scientific basis, right? We know that there are different brainwave states that we can measure in our head. Most of you right now are in the beta or waking frequency. Roughly 10% of you statistically would be at the alpha or restful state. You're kind of in this restful state if you are a frequent meditator. Maybe it's also genetic. Maybe you were born with a brain that's less prone to stress. Maybe you just um, had a wonderful conversation with a friend. Maybe someone just gave you a hug. You go into this restful, peaceful state. That's alpha. That's the level of restfulness, but also creativity. Now, you can slow down your brain further to theta. 
theta is a dreamy state. When you're at theta, it's hard to keep your head straight. So when you're meditating and you start nodding off like that, you're dipping into theta. Theta is interesting. Theta is where ideas come from. Theta is the realm of psychic ability. But there is a state even beyond that, and that is delta. Delta is what you're in when you're asleep. Thomas Edison was known for his naps, right? So he created some 2,300 patents in the Western world. One of the greatest inventors of all time. So he would sleep with a metal ball in his hand. And as he drifted off into sleep, his hand would drop, the ball would drop, it would hit an iron plate below him, jolting him out of sleep. And in his mind, there would be a new idea. But what he was doing was dipping from beta to theta, beta to theta. He was dipping in here to grab ideas and bring them out to the waking state. Edison had a famous assistant, Nikola Tesla. He said, the mind is sharper and keener in seclusion and uninterrupted solitude. No big laboratory is needed in which to think. Originality thrives in seclusion, free of outside influences beating upon us to cripple the creative mind. Be alone. That is the secret of invention. Be alone. That is when ideas are born. This is why many of the earthly miracles have had their genesis in humble surroundings. Going into yourself, listening to that still voice within. Now Tesla also said this, instinct is something which transcends knowledge. We have undoubtedly certain finer fibers that enable us to perceive truth when logical deduction or any other willful effort of the brain is futile. One of Tesla's most famous quotes is this, my brain is only a receiver. In the universe, there is a core from which we obtain knowledge, strength, and inspiration. First thing to understand is meditation. What happens when we meditate? And what exactly is meditation? Meditation is often, often, often like misunderstood in the Western world because we think it's about clearing your mind, focusing on your breath, getting very peaceful. And that's true. That's getting into alpha. That's relaxation. But you can go way deeper. You can be able to go into deeper levels of meditation to source ideas, to source inspiration. So I designed a, a form of meditation for the world. It's called the six-phase meditation. And really the six-phase is a mental protocol um, and it's crazy powerful. And the six-phase changes your state of being and puts you in this powerful state. And I designed it specifically for people who um, are really goal-driven, really, really all about building and creating change in the world. And they have difficulty slowing their mind down or emptying their mind because their mind is all over the place. The six-phase, nurtures that it, it embraces that that aspect of the mind being super active but channels it in such a way of using six principles to accelerate the way you show up in the world it actually makes you younger improves your health improves flow states improves your cognition improves your peace of mind makes you kinder and makes you manifest better i know that's a that, that's a big um, um list but it is a powerful practice that everyone should be doing.
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.